Welcome to Brain Ignition Radio. Here I share with you all of the knowledge and resources I've gained as it relates to nutrition, exercise, and brain health. By sharing these interesting case studies, in-depth discussions, and research, I hope that we can learn together and improve our current health and the health of future generations. I'm your host, Chet Binning, and I thank you for tuning in. What's up, you guys? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Brain Ignition Radio. Today, we're going to talk about the optimal diet to prevent or even treat depression. So that's a bold statement, right? Before we get into this, I just want to emphasize, I am not a medical doctor, I'm not a physician, and so I cannot make medical recommendations. And so please, anything you hear, consult your healthcare physician before introducing any of these into your life. So what we're going to do is basically what I'm doing is I'm summarizing the research for you. We're summarizing all of the data, looking at this kind of comprehensively and saying, okay, based on this and everything that's out there, what can we say is the optimal way of eating, or at least the most important factors when it comes to diet in order to address something like this. So we're going to talk about some of the most important micronutrients. These would include vitamin D, omega-3, and magnesium. We're going to talk about all of these. We'll also talk about the importance of sunlight and circadian rhythms. We'll talk about inflammation and neuroinflammation. I've talked a little bit about this in, I guess, both episode one and two, but we're really going to dig into this more today. We'll also talk about anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen and and some of the well-known ones. We'll also talk about some common quote-unquote diets and how this factors in, particularly vegan diets. We're also going to talk about valuable lab tests to assess risk factors. I highly doubt that we're going to be able to cover all of this in this episode today, and that's okay. I'm I'm prepared to take this longer, maybe upwards of an hour if we need to. A couple quick announcements before we jump in. So you guys will be listening to this on Tuesday, February 23rd. I'm doing a webinar tonight with Shift Concussion Management. So this is a organization based out of Guelph. As the name implies, they deal with concussion treatment and rehabilitation. I'm going to be doing a free webinar hosted by them tomorrow night. I've posted all the details about this on my socials. You can also check this out on their Instagram page. And so if you're interested in any of that, definitely check out that link. Like I said, it is totally free. Um, I believe it's at seven, might be at 7.30 though. So make sure you double check that. What else? Um, I've introduced a new, a new product option. It's not really a product service option. I should, I should say it's not on my website yet, but everyone has access to this now. 
So if you've been following me for a while, you know that I offer in-depth consultations where I do an in-depth assessment. We look at your lab work if you have it, and then we come up with a customized program that fits your needs. This includes meal plan, how to adjust your lifestyle and so on. But I'm also introducing uh, just a simple Q&A option. So this will be a, a 30 minute Q&A with me where anything goes. So this is a much simpler option, right? If you have any burning questions about a new goal or dietary approach, or maybe you've just been struggling with some things lately and you need some help to point you in the right direction, or even if you just want to bounce some ideas off of me, because obviously there's so many um, facts and protocols out there and it's just really hard to know what to follow. So maybe this is a good option for you. So check that out. I'll have that on my website shortly, but in the meantime, feel free to just reach out to me. So I actually listened to my previous episode. Rarely do I do that. I don't like listening to them, but I, I did listen to this one. That was the one about optimizing your levels of omega-3. So if, if you listen to this one, you'll know what I'm talking about perhaps. I, I gotta be honest with you guys, I absolutely hated that episode. I just thought it was, it, it just didn't, it didn't represent the information that I wanted it to. I don't think it did the topic justice. The flow was terrible. Um, I, I just didn't like it and it's been really bothering me. Now it's funny, I, I did still hear from some people in response to that podcast, just saying like, hey, that was awesome, that was great, thank you for that. Um, so I guess I'm my my biggest critic, but still, um, you know, I, I just didn't like it. And so I'm, I'm ready to really build on that this week. But one big thing that I've changed, I don't know if you guys know, but the first two that I did, I was, I was trying to do things a little bit differently. So I was actually recording, but I was also at the same time re um, recording video of myself as well as my screen. And so that's what allowed me to actually show studies and go through those and then be able to post that on YouTube for people who want more graphics and, and want to actually see the research. I haven't quite gotten the hang of this yet. It's, it's, it's pretty challenging actually just trying to balance all of those. And so that's why there's a lot of pauses and, and, and the flow just isn't there. So for this one, I'm, I'm kind of just, um, not winging it, but I'm not doing any of the video on this one. And so I think that the flow is going to be a lot better. And then as I go forward, I'll, I'll have to figure out what's best. But I mean, bottom line is I think most people are listening to the audio. And so we're just going to stick to that for now. So before we jump into this, I do also want to just make sure that that people don't think that I'm, you know, shaming or blaming people for feeling the way they might feel. That's definitely not what this is about. It, it's not, I mean, just this is the last thing I want people to think is that, you know, I'm, I'm put, shifting blame onto people in a, in a way that says, oh, well, you know, you feel this way because you eat like shit. No, that's not what this is about. This is to acknowledge one of the most important factors for our mental well-being that is completely ignored. To me, the fact that this is completely ignored by, I mean, kind of just society in general and our healthcare system is, 
to me, that's cruelty. Um, it drives me crazy that this gets no attention whatsoever. We literally bypass this and instead just prescribe these powerful drugs with crazy side effects that oftentimes don't even work. This is just so wrong to me. It's one thing for me to say that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove that to you. I'm gonna show you why this is the case. But remember, nutrition certainly is not the only factor here. This is multifactorial. Just like many things in health, there's so many different factors at play here. Nutrition is just one of them, but one of the most important ones. So what I mean is when it comes to mental health or anything, we have to consider the environment, the sleep-wake schedule, our exposure to toxins or chemicals, our exercise and activity. Do we have previous traumatic experiences? What's our relationships like? Um, how's our family life? How's our financial? What about genetics? So remember, all of this is at play as well, but I am arguing that nutrition must be considered here. And we're gonna talk about the most important factors. So before we jump into some of the specifics, like, you know, specific food, uh, foods or, or habits, meal timing, all of that, all that specific stuff, we first have to, we first have to understand really more about inflammation. So I've, I've talked a little bit about this in the previous two episodes, but this is really the link. This is the link between diet and mental health. It's the link between even exercise and mental health. And so we really have to understand this before we can talk about how and why these different foods and micronutrients affect mental health and depression. So it's very complex, of course, right? Inflammation, but just think of inflammation as basically the signals that mobilize your immune system. So this is there to protect us. So you can think about getting sick or having an infection, or maybe you have, have a burn or a trauma or whatever. Inflammation is basically the signals in response to this that mobilize our immune system so that it can cope with that and, and, and mitigate that. Now with this and, inflammation or this inflammatory response, we also have to distinguish between acute versus chronic inflammation. So I want to actually use exercise as an example of this. So when you do a hard training session, or if you play a hockey game or a soccer game or whatever, you actually have a quite large inflammatory response during and after that training session. And in fact, that inflammation is going to persist for several hours afterwards, oftentimes up to 24 hours, or if the session is really hard and demanding, it could be even longer, sometimes a couple days, if it's, if it's something really grueling like a marathon or something. So that inflammatory response, it, it's actually necessary for us to adapt to exercise. So for you to get the benefits, or I just like to call them the gains from exercise, you actually need that and you want that inflammatory response. So this is a perfect example that shows that inflammation is 
absolutely not all bad. In fact, we we badly need this. This is critical for survival. Obviously, because what I said was it's it's the signal that mobilizes our immune system, which then basically helps us survive. But for exercise, again, this is a good thing. We want that inflammation. And in fact, if you look at the research, you'll find that taking anti-inflammatories post-workout, it can actually block some of the gains that we get from training. So there's some really interesting studies done where they take two groups and they put them through the exact same training plan. And then afterwards, they'll look at markers of like, um, for instance, how much lean muscle they've built throughout that whatever six week training program or whatever it is with one group, they give them placebo. So just basically nothing, a placebo control after each workout, the other group, they'll give them an anti-inflammatory after the workout. And what they find is that the groups that take that anti-inflammatory post-workout, they actually experience less of the gains to that training program. So they'll experience less muscle growth. Sometimes they'll experience less of the beneficial immune system changes that we get from exercising. And so this perfectly leads into then chronic inflammation. So remember, we were talking about this in the first place because I want to differentiate between acute versus chronic inflammation. So acute is that initial response to that single session, like I mentioned, that persists for a long period of time. And then chronic, this is long periods of time. So this is the response that you're going to get that persists. And so why I use this example is because we know that exercise has beneficial effects on inflammation. So it lowers our overall inflammation. It lowers things like, and we're going to get into some of these things like high sensitivity C-reactive protein or otherwise known as HSCRP or things like TNF-alpha. So this is a good thing. It lowers these. And that's the chronic inflammation I'm talking about. So acute is that initial response. Chronic is what persists and, and what we have for long periods of time. So it's the chronic inflammation that we are particularly focused on here. Because having high levels of inflammation chronically, so for long periods of time, we know is a, a huge risk factor for quite literally basically every single chronic illness, whether it's lung disease, kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease in the brain, mental health and depression, which we're going to talk about today, injury, arthritis, autoimmune conditions. I mean, absolutely everything. High levels of inflammation is a risk factor in underlying all of these. And, and we're going we're gonna to break this apart a little bit more. So one thing I want to make sure I give you guys as we go through this and, and really all of these episodes, I want to give you actionable tools. And so one thing that I want to point out already is if you ever get lab work done, especially if you're looking at markers of inflammation, which is an awesome idea, make sure you do not work out for at least 24 hours before you get that lab work done. 
just as a quick little side story here, I had a client a few weeks ago who he came to me after a, a visit with his doctor, rather concerned because they were looking at his lab work and he had some questionable kidney markers. So they looked at creatinine and they looked at the <clears throat> glomular filtration rate. So long story short, these markers looked um, pretty concerning. And in fact, the doctor told him quite clearly, you know, this is an issue. We need to address this. Now the doctor actually chalked this up to high, too high, I should say too high of protein and meat consumption. So blatantly he said to this client, you need to reduce your protein and meat intake because you are, you are uh, damaging your kidney. Just look at these markers. But what he didn't realize was that this client did a hard training program only a couple hours before he got that lab work taken. And so something like creatinine, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but this is a, a byproduct of the breakdown of creatine. So you will accumulate creatinine as you break down creatine. Well, what happens during a workout? You naturally break down creatine. This is completely normal. You're breaking down that creatine to fuel your muscles and fuel your performance. The EGFR, that glomular filtration rate, well, it changes as creatinine changes. And so long story short, these markers were not off at all. They were only looking questionable because they were responding to that exercise session. And so, this is a perfect example of why you do not want to get lab work done after an exercise, um, after exercise, sorry, your, inf your inflammatory markers as well would be through the roof and they would look, they, they would look terrible if you got it done right after exercise. I actually had someone get lab work done one time the morning after like boozing for, I don't know, he must've been boozing pretty hard. And so I looked at his HSCRP, which is a marker of inflammation, which he had assessed the morning after boozing. And it was like absurd, just through the roof. I was like, what's going on here, man? And then finally he told me and I, we had a, we had a laugh together. So that matters timing. So that's a takeaway. All right. So we've differentiated between acute and chronic, right? And so let's get into some of these, some of these individual markers, but also what this means for the brain, because, because inflammation in the body does impact inflammation in the brain. And we'll talk a little bit about really how this happens, but the key takeaway here is that, so we do have, we have a blood brain barrier, right? This is, as the name implies, it's basically this, a barrier is the simplest term here that separates your general circulation from your brain. So this is a, a protective adaptation, right? It, it keeps your brain somewhat separated from the rest of your body to protect our most vital organ. Now, that being said, the blood brain barrier is permeable sometimes to some things. So the point here is that if we have inflammation throughout the rest of our body, it, it can and does impact our brain. 
that this is very well known and, and very well established. And so this is where things start to get a little bit interesting. So we talked about inflammation in the body, but inflammation in the brain, it, it works pretty similar actually to the rest of your body. Now your brain does technically have its own immune system, but they still can somewhat communicate with one another. But what I want to explain to you is that the, the immune system in your brain, it's still there to, to do the exact same thing as the rest of our immune system. So it responds to trauma, for example, it responds to concussion. So after a blow to the head and a concussion, we get a huge elevation in inflammation. This is usually a good thing. So this serves to mobilize different immune cells, which then initiate that repair process. Um, infection or sepsis or neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or ALS or Huntington's or whatever, inflammation is at play with all of these. We can have inflammatory insults from the environment or just other changes from homeostasis. Now with all of this, whether we're talking about what we would call systemic inflammation. So this is inflammation in the rest of your body. Or if we're talking about central inflammation, which is inflammation in your brain, we know that too much is a terrible thing. It's not a good thing at all. And that's why that's why inflammation increases our risk for chronic illness, like I mentioned earlier. But what about in the brain? How does this actually work? So this is incredibly complex, obviously, but in the brain we have to, and, and we're gonna get it into the weeds a little bit here, guys, but this is, remember, this is all building up to how nutrition is important here. And this is also gonna build on why something like exercise is important too. So, but in the brain we have, neurons and we also have other cell types so neurons are what control how you walk how you talk how you think how you feel so these are what we hear about most often right neurons um, which is why we see the term neuroscience or neurology so neurons obviously are very important because like i said they're basically controlling you on a daily basis but I think what's not very well known is that they are not the only cell type in the brain, just like in the body, how you have multiple cell types, you have um, cells in your heart, you have cells in your liver and your kidneys, you have immune cells, all these different types of cells that work together and communicate with one another. The brain is similar. And one of these other cell types is called microglia. So this is uh, what these are known as is the basically the innate immune cells of your brain. So it's just a fancy term to say that these are kind of the quote unquote king or the primary immune cells of your brain. So you have neurons and then you have various immune cells, including microglia. So these microglia are pretty cool. You can actually think of them like, I know I use this tree and branches example already, but it works here too. So think of these as like a tree. These microglia cells have 
these long extending branches. And when they extend these branches out, they can actually make contact with our neurons and impact how they function. These microglia can also shrink up, so kind of reduce their branches, become very small, and then rapidly move around the brain. When they're small and rapidly moving, that's when we have high levels of inflammation. So we get, just imagine, we get this traumatic um, event to the brain. So we knock our head, these microglia go, oh shit, inflammation. They shrink up and they rapidly move to that site of injury. And then they initiate that repair process. On the other hand, during quote unquote homeostasis. So just think of this as healthy conditions. So just today you're sitting there, hopefully you're not stressed out, you're relaxed, you're kind of just listening to this. Your microglia have these long extended branches and they're just kind of sitting there. So they're not moving, they're just surveying the environment. And so this is a really cool kind of precise example of how the immune cells in our brain rapidly change in response to inflammation or neuroinflammation as it's called in the brain. So why are we talking about this in the first place? Well, remember I said that these microglia cells can control your neurons, right? And they, they really can. I liked, I don't know how I came up with this example, but I was just kind of writing down a couple notes this morning and I came up with the example of Ozark. I don't, if you guys have seen this show, um, awesome show first off. So if you haven't seen it, you should watch it, but it's on Netflix. Basically it's this family who, um, gets into a bad spot with the cartel and then the cartel really, I mean, essentially takes them hostage and forces them to do all these things or else they'll kill them. And so you can kind of think of microglia like the cartel sort of, so they can impact your neurons and really affect how your neurons behave. And you don't really have control over that. So the reason I highlight this is because your neurons, of course, can affect your mood. Well, these can be impacted by your microglia. And so what I'm saying is your mood can be impacted by your immune system and by inflammation. Now, this is certainly not the only thing going on in something like depression, but this is just, this is just one of the major concepts. And, and I, and I hope it really helps people start to kind of imagine this and visualize this. So the key takeaway here is really that neuroinflammation in the brain and just inflammation in general can change how the neurons in your brain work. And for what we're talking about, neuroinflammation in the brain can alter your mood and even cause something like depression. So now I want to get into just a couple different studies that have, have highlighted this. Now for this, Another thing I want to quickly differentiate between is correlation versus causation. So some of you guys maybe are already familiar with this, some maybe not so much. 
So correlation is basically two events that happen at the same time, which appear to be influencing one another. The keyword here is appear. So one of the uh, kind of the golden rule of correlation is that correlation does not equal causation. And I'll show you what I mean with, with a couple of these examples. So here's some famous correlations that have been found. So two events that have statistically been shown to happen alongside one another. So like as a simple example, as one increases, the other one increases at the exact same time. Couple examples, ice cream consumption is correlated with the rates of murder. So as ice cream consumption goes up in May, so too does the murder rate. Another funny example, pirates cause global warming. So as the number of pirates around the world have decreased since the early 1900s, the average temperature of the earth has began to rise. So these sound ridiculous, don't they? And really they are, but this is a classic example of correlation and how it can, can not always, but can be flawed. So let's think of the famous example now of the recommendations to reduce our saturated fat intake. Do you know why those exist? Well, it's because the consumption of saturated fat correlates with cardiovascular disease. So if you track our food consumption since the early 1900s, as we started consuming more saturated fat, the prevalence of cardiovascular disease and heart attacks increased. So this is where our food recommenda recommendations, sorry, to limit saturated fat intake and ultimately limit our meat and red meat intake. This is where they came from. They're based on correlation. And remember, correlation does not equal causation. Now it might seem some people to some people maybe seem obvious. They'll say, well, of course the saturated fat causes the, the heart disease. But I'm gonna tell you why that's not the case. In this example, it, it definitely seems like this would be the cause, but correlation cannot pick up on other important variables. So what I mean by that is saturated fat, well, that has perhaps increased. What else has increased? Well, Processed food intake has increased. The consumption of vegetable and seed oil has increased, which we talked a little bit about last week, but that's going to come up again. Fast food has increased. Basically, we've just consumed less real food overall. Another thing that it cannot pick up on is, well, what is that saturated fat or meat being consumed alongside? Well, oftentimes it's being consumed alongside a sugary filled pop loaded with artificial flavors and God knows what else. It's being consumed alongside fries, deep fried in vegetable oil. It might be being consumed alongside whatever else is found at that fast food restaurant. It also cannot pick up on the type of meat. So is this fast food? 
Is it processed? Is it deli meat or is it high quality meat? The other interesting thing we see is that people who tend to consume the most saturated fat, again, this is not everyone, but this is just on average, also tend to be the people who care the least about their health. So this has been shown over and over and over again. People who consume the most red meat are usually the people who also don't exercise. Oftentimes they smoke and they just report not caring about their health. So this sounds funny, but if you think about the recommendations that, that exist, we've been told for several decades now, lower your saturated fat, lower your cholesterol, lower your salt. And so the people who continue consuming that are either A, people who do the research and, and realize that, oh, actually this isn't unhealthy, but I would say that's a, minor, a minority. The majority are the people who are what we would call deviants. They're told quite clearly, hey, you need to reduce this because it's unhealthy. And they just say, screw it. I don't really care about my health. And so I'm actually going to seek this out and consume more of it. And so the point here is that while correlation sometimes, while it may seem like the obvious and sure answer, it doesn't tell us the whole story. And as you found out with those earlier examples, even though those are ridiculous, that's still correlation. Those are just, those are cl more closely correlated. Ice cream and murder is more closely correlated than something like meat consumption and cancer. And so that's, that's the point here is that correlation does not tell us everything. And so it can be flawed. It doesn't tell us where they having pop with that, where they having deep fried French fries, where they having, um, you know, whatever, what's the rest of their diet. So the reason I point this out is because the evidence that shows us that inflammation can cause depression is actually causal data. So not only is there correlational data to show this, but there's also causal data showing that inflammation can quite literally cause depression in the brain. So let's just back up for a quick second here. Hopefully you're not, but maybe you're wondering, Chet, why the hell are you talking about this? I thought we were going to talk about diet. Well, I'm telling you this because we know that diet has a huge impact on our inflammation. There's several different ways that it does this, and we're going to get into those as well. But before we get to that, we need to address this first question here. So I really want to help you guys understand this, kind of this part A, before we get to that part B. So just as an example, there is some really, what I would call really strong and powerful correlation data that shows that inflammation is at least associated with depression. So correlation data, I don't want to give you guys the impression that it's useless. It absolutely is not. We use it to generate hypotheses. So hypotheses that can then um, allow us to do future experiments, which can kind of look a little bit closer, a little bit deeper. So here's a couple examples. Now, so a lot of these use a marker called HSCRP. I mentioned this earlier. This is known as high sensitivity C-reactive protein. 
This is a marker that's going to be found in your blood, which tells us how high our inflammation is. So as an example, we use the um, exercise example earlier. After a hard training session, HSCRP is going to be really high. But that's acute. We're more concerned with chronic. So what does having chronically high levels of HSCRP tell us? Well, we know that the risk of depression is increased by 44% with higher levels of HSCRP. We know that other markers of inflammation are 50% higher in individuals with depression compared to those without. So these other markers are ones like TNF-alpha, um, which is tumor necrosis factor alpha. This is another inflammatory marker. And then HSCRP, like we mentioned. Those with higher HSCRP had a 1.86 increased risk of depression. We can also use HSCRP to predict who will relapse and predict who will be resistant to common pharmacology treatment of depression. So this is really interesting data, right? But remember, this is only correlation. So even though it's, you know, very strong data and um, the mechanisms make sense, we still not, we still cannot, sorry, definitively say that inflammation causes depression. Perhaps it's the other way around. Maybe we become depressed and then the inflammation increases. And so that's what studies like this that I'm about to show you have looked at. So this one in particular, maybe you've seen this one. I've posted this on my socials before. So what they did was they took two different groups. One group, they injected participants with a placebo. So remember, a placebo is used as a control. So they would have injected them with saline, which has no effect. With the other group, they injected them with something called LPS. So LPS, known as lipopolysaccharide, is it's a bacterial endotoxin. So you can basically just think of this as Think of this as something that drastically increases inflammation in the body, which can then trigger inflammation in the brain. Now, before I tell you the rest of the study, the interesting thing about this is we can actually get higher levels naturally of bacterial endotoxin if we have gut permeability. So we actually naturally have bacterial endotoxin within our gut, but it's supposed to stay there. It's, it's, it's not a good thing if it gets out of our gut and into the rest of our circulation because it triggers such a strong inflammatory response. That's why it's used in research. And so if we have things like gut permeability, maybe you've heard of this as leaky gut, which is basically, it's quite literally the this development of space or gaps of the tight junctions that line your gut. If we get gaps developing there, which can happen from basically just quote unquote poor diet, which we're going to really uncover, then that bacterial endotoxin, which is in our gut, 
can get through that barrier, get into the rest of our circulation and just ramp up inflammation, which is like we talked about, not a good thing. But in this example, they were just injecting this right into participants. So right into their circulation to drive up inflammation. So what they wanted to figure out was, could this inflammation basically um, cause depression in these individuals? And so I'm not showing graphics today, but this is probably one that if I could just show one today, I wish I could show you guys this, but I'll just explain it to you. What they found was that, so remember these are, I didn't mention this, these are, um, these are individuals who have had no history of depression. What they found was that a couple hours after giving this injection of endotoxin, the reports of depression or feelings of depression in these participants perfectly increased. So as the levels of inflammation increased in these individuals, so too did their feelings of depression. And as those levels of inflammation came down a couple hours after, at that exact same time, so too did the reports and feelings of depression. So it's a really, really interesting study. It's not the only one of its kind either, but this is fascinating because what it shows us is that inflammation can be in fact causal. And so, I think this definitely kind of nicely explains that link, but this shows us that it, it, it is more than correlation. So this just kind of confirms the correlation data. So the other reason this is interesting is because it, well, it, it kind of starts to actually piece some other things together. So as a simple example, the data also really strongly shows that obesity is strongly associated with depression. So I know that probably a, a, a counter argument that people would have to this is, well, you know, maybe they're just experiencing low self-confidence because they're, they're not feeling good about their body at that time. So yeah, while that is perhaps a factor, there's actual physiological mechanisms at play here. So as you increase the amount of fat you have stored, you increase adipose tissue. So sorry, that's, that wasn't very clear. Your, your fat tissue is known as adipose tissue. It's the same thing. As you increase your adipose tissue or increase fat mass, those individual cells that make up your fat they actually begin to release their own inf uh, their own inflammation. So they release their own pro-inflammatory cytokines. So this is another crazy thing about the human body is that our fat is actually its own organ because it creates these own hormones and signals, which is crazy. But the point here is that as your fat mass grows, it releases pro-inflammatory markers. And so one thing that might be going on is as you release all of this inflammation, well, then this is actually what might be triggering that depression, which we know is more common if people are in a position of obesity. So this is kind of just another example here. Um, 
I will mention a couple other, just kind of in passing, some really interesting um, pieces of data. We also see really interesting associations between depression and some autoimmune conditions, particularly rheumatoid arthritis. So why this one is so interesting is because we know that arthritis is associated with really high levels of inflammation, right? Of course, this is one of the things that causes that joint pain. So these individuals that have really high inflammation, they also quite often also have depression. And so this is another piece of uh, evidence that suggests this link between inflammation and depression. Now, before we get into finally, finally, you guys are probably saying, holy shit, when are we going to talk about diet? What was I saying there? Right. Just a couple of different ways of how inflammation can actually go from body to brain. Cause this is interesting too. We're not going to get into this in a ton of detail, but it is kind of cool. I think just to acknowledge because like I said, your general circulation is separate from your brain. So it's not like your blood just flows from your body into your brain and carries this inflammation with it. So one example would be your vagus nerve actually. So this is the longest, it's known as a cranial nerve. It's the longest cranial nerve in your body. So your cranial nerves are a set of, I actually forget how many um, specifically there are, which I should know because I was forced to memorize these when I was still studying this. But these are the specific set of nerves that usually they control uh, facial expression in particular. So movement of the jaw and mouth and, and eyes and so on. But this one, the vagus nerve is, it's, it's kind of unique compared to the other ones in a sense because it is the longest, but because it, it goes from your brainstem actually all the way down into your digestive tract and it, and it innervates some of your internal organs. So it goes from what's called the nucleus tractus solitaris of your brainstem down into your digestive system. This one's really cool, in fact, because it does, it, it controls so much more than just facial movements and and what most of these other cranial nerves control. So I think that's just a cool example because we wouldn't, I don't think we would think that, hey, um, our digestion is actually really strongly impacted by this region of our brainstem or specifically this nerve. So the point of this is that if we have high levels of inflammation in our general circulation, this vagus nerve can actually relay some of these signals into your brainstem, which then relay these signals to the rest of your brain. So that's kind of one major way. Um, you also have these transporters on your blood brain barrier, which can literally take these signals of inflammation from your general circulation and transport them across that blood brain barrier and into your brain. So this is just a couple examples. I just kind of want to help you guys visualize this because I know it's a, it's a funny thing. Now there is some other kind of mechanistic examples of how neuroinflammation in the brain can actually cause depression. We're not really going to get into this today. 
Um, I think I would probably just bore you guys to death. And frankly, like this is still a newly emerging field. So we're not really going to get into this. Now, I did talk a little bit about this in episode one, if you guys haven't listened to that. Just kind of one example, because obviously there's a lot going on, but it's just an example of one specific mechanism of how exercise can actually be a therapeutic treatment for depression. So if you haven't heard that, definitely check that one out. So finally, finally, we get to this. One of the first things we're going to talk about is the importance of omega-3. So this will be the first kind of dietary measure that we talk about, or the first, uh, the first important dietary factor that we talk about. So it's very well, very well established in the research that individuals with depression, again, on average, this isn't always the case, but on average, individuals with depression have lower levels of omega-3. And so this is why this is a target. But remember, that would be an example of correlation. And so we have to dig a little deeper. So with the omega-3, we also still have to talk about HSCRP, which we talked about earlier. So we know that high HSCRP is a factor here. And one of the one of the important things about omega-3 is that it can affect the levels of your HSCRP. So this is one kind of specific example right here, right? Is that the levels of omega-3 can impact various markers of inflammation. So having having adequate or optimal levels of omega-3 will help lower our overall inflammation. So that's really important. Now, quick takeaway here, if you guys are getting some of this lab work done, let's say you get HSCRP, you, I'm going to give you a couple more to, to look at if, if you're interested, but, and I'll summarize these at the end, but just as we go along here, let's quickly kind of note this one. If you're looking at HSCRP, you want it to be below one. So below one would be getting you closer to that optimal range. I think one would be a little bit high. So you want to get that lower, like 0 0.9, 0 0.8, even lower, get that down towards 0.1 is the goal. So HSCRP will also be higher. I mentioned exercise, but it'll also be higher after something like sunburn. It'll even be higher after some meals. And so that's why you want to go into that somewhat fasted. So about 12 hours is a good time to get that lab work done. Now, we did talk a little bit about omega-3 last time, but I'm just going to review some of it because I don't think I did a very good job and because it is just very important here. So anytime we talk about omega-3, we need to acknowledge how it relates to omega-6 because it's not the amount of omega-3 you consume that is most important. It's actually how much omega-6 you consume alongside with your omega-3. Because what we talked about last time was that you can actually increase the levels of omega-3 in your body and brain just by decreasing the amount of omega-6 you consume from your diet. So that's important. So these work in balance, right? 
Now, lab test, another takeaway here. If you want to look at the levels of omega-3, this is a tricky one, but you can get what's called an omega-3 index. This would be the most common one. So the omega-3 index, it basically gives you a percent value of how much total omega-3 you have in your cell membranes. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit more difficult to get a omega-6-3 index. Um, so again, quick recap from last time. We talked about that, or sorry, that 6-3 ratio. So we talked about that one-to-one -one ratio, which we used to have in the early 1900s. Now we're closer to that 30 to one ratio, which is not a good thing because it's increasing inflammation. It's tough to get a measurement of what your omega six to three ratio is, but you can quite easily get this omega three index it's called. So you should be able to get this from hopefully your family physician, but, but not always. Um, if not, you could get it from something like life labs or a naturopath or something like that. So omega three is a percent. And if you want a guideline, um, it'll show you on your results, but you want to be over 8%. So over 8% would be a good marker for this. So let's quickly talk about how omega-3 is actually doing this. So, so why do these studies show that low levels of omega-3 are often associated with depression? And why do studies that give individuals with depression omega-3 why do they find a benefit? Well, as you might have guessed, the most important benefit here probably is that having adequate levels of omega-3, of course, can control inflammation and neuroinflammation. So there's a couple different ways that this happens. So omega-3 can actually create what are called these, these pro-resolving mediators. So specifically, these are things like resolvins and protectins, they're called. But what they do is they, they basically can control inflammation. So just imagine these as, as these signals that we can release, which can help crank down inflammation when it becomes high. So this is a, it, it, it's a protective effect. We get similar benefits from omega-3 as it relates to oxidative stress. So we're always consuming all these antioxidants, right? That's in an attempt to lower excess oxidative stress. But this is just a fundamental way that we can do that. Having adequate omega-3 is going to reduce the amount of oxidative stress that you even have in the first place. Now, it can also affect our neurotransmitters. So it can do this by not only influencing inflammation, but also directly. So maybe you guys have heard of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. So this is a really important neurotransmitter for memory and learning and even plasticity, which is the ability of your brain to basically rewire itself and adapt and, and learn new things no matter how old you are. Well, Omega-3 allows us to increase our release of acetylcholine. So this is obviously a good thing, but it can also influence other neurotransmitters, specifically serotonin. So we talked about this a couple episodes ago as well. This is probably more well known that serotonin is involved in 
mental health and depression, right? There's a reason why SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, there's a reason why these are the most common treatment for depression. What they do is they allow serotonin to remain in that synaptic cleft, which is that space between two neurons. They allow that serotonin to be there longer so that that serotonin can bind to that next neuron and initiate those signals and feelings. So those feelings of basically just a good mood, a good calm mood is one of the things that serotonin is associated with. But omega-3 can also naturally impact this because if we have high levels of inflammation, this actually negatively impacts your serotonin. It negatively impacts your dopamine as well. So this would be one of those specific mechanisms that we're not really going to get into that too much today. I think we've already gone into the weeds enough. Some of you guys are probably already cursing at me, but this is just... I, it, it's a perfect example, right, of how omega-3 affects inflammation, but it can also impact these neurotransmitters that are quite literally making us feel the way we do. Dopamine, this doesn't get nearly enough attention as it relates to depression, in my opinion. Dopamine is that rewarding chemical. When you feel really good about something, whether that's, um, it could be taking drugs or it could even be just crossing something off your to-do list. When you feel good about that, that's a release of dopamine and having optimal levels of inflammation, which omega-3 helps us with, will allow us to get that proper signaling, that proper signaling of serotonin and dopamine. And there's a couple other ways, of course, but let's really dig into now how we can actually optimize omega-3 with our diet. So I should probably make note of the time of this episode when we actually start talking about diet so that I can add it into the show notes. It's like an hour or something. At last, we're getting to it. But of course, this will be a little bit of review um, compared to last one, but I did this on purpose because I felt like I did kind of a shitty job of this. So let's just really review this really well and, and, and kind of break this down. So remember what I said is that Omega-3 is not only impacted, sorry, our omega-3 levels are not only impacted by how much omega-3 we consume, but also how much omega-6 we consume. And that right there is the reason why our levels of omega-3 have really gotten so much worse since the early 1900s. We've started consuming so much omega-6 that it's driving our omega-3 way down. That's why we've gone from that one to one ratio to that 30 to one ratio. The biggest source of this is actually vegetable oil. Again, we talked about this last time, but the consumption of all vegetable oil, particularly soybean oil, has dramatically increased since the early 1900s. Soybean oil consumption has increased by over a thousand fold. Now, the problem with this is that this gives us something called linoleic acid. This is a type of omega-6 that literally blocks, it blocks the pathways that allow us to make omega-3. So it prevents us from making 
EPA and DHA, which are the two primary types of omega-3s. So we consume more of this and it drives down our omega-3. Now, the ironic thing here is, you know, we talked about correlation stuff earlier. The ironic thing here is that the consumption of vegetable oil also correlates with cardiovascular disease. It's ironic because these were actually first introduced in an attempt to basically fight um, cardiovascular disease. I don't know if that was their initial um, rationale for them. I think that kind of developed later on. It's kind of a dark history, but the, that's the ironic thing here. And, and oftentimes they're still touted today as being healthy and we're often encouraged to consume them. But um, these have a lot of problems that we're going to get more into in future episodes. But the key takeaway here is that we're going to get into a lot of uh, things you can apply now is to limit your consumption of vegetable oil. I emphasized this last time, but I want to emphasize this again. This is right here, the easiest and absolutely the most effective thing that we can do to improve our mental health. In my opinion, no, there has not been studies that show if we decrease our processed food intake, we prevent depression. You're not going to see this. Um, nutrition research is as it's messy enough as is to try and do a trial like that. And it, it it's just not going to work. There's too many problems there. You're not going to see it, but we can look at the data comprehensively, understand the mechanisms and the science and say that this is vital. I, when we think about it, I mean, I, I, I don't think it, this shouldn't be a, a hard thing to, um, you know, kind of understand, like I, I, and of course I'm biased, but do we really think that consuming a shit ton of processed food is good for our brain? I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me, but, um, you know, people will argue this, but anyways, to me, this is the easiest and probably the most important step. Number one is to absolutely at all costs, lower your processed food intake, especially you are someone who's struggling or you know someone who is struggling or has before this has to be one of their one of their primary steps so this is why it just drives me crazy that you know we and it's 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 no one's it's the system's fault but we go to the doctor we say you know hey doc i'm not feeling good i feel depressed low mood they don't even ask anything about the diet and you know, that's just the way it is. That's, that's what I want to kind of fight to improve, but work to decrease your vegetable oil consumption. The best way to do that is to avoid processed food, because if you walk through those middle aisles in a grocery store, granola bars, chips, crackers, I mean, just do this guys, go to the grocery store and walk down those aisles, look on the side of a box of these items you will see this in 90% of food items found in that grocery store. You'll see things like canola oil, soybean oil. You might see sunflower oil. You might see it shown as just a vegetable oil. Do yourself a favor and just start to just limit these at, at as much as you possibly can. It's not possible to completely remove these. 
unless you take a, a really aggressive dietary approach, um, I don't think that's necessary, but you can absolutely limit these. You're also going to find them in all fast food, basically, excuse me, and a lot of restaurant food, unfortunately. Now, I'm not saying, you know, never go to a restaurant, never eat out, just kind of pick your poison, in my opinion. That's, that's the way I see it. Take care of what you can control is what I say. You can control what you eat at home, what you have for breakfast, what you take on your lunch, what you make the family for dinner. That way, if you go out for supper on the weekend with friends, family, whatever, well then, hey, you're totally fine to have a little bit of that vegetable oil then or whatever it is because you've taken care of the rest of the week, which you can control. So that's the most important thing you can do. Now, the other important thing, of course, is to consume healthy sources of omega-3. So what are these? Well, we know that fish is, is the highest source of omega-3. So I would, when possible, try and stick to, if we're talking about fish, really prioritize small fish. This is because of the bioaccumulation of mercury. So bigger fish, something like a shark or even tuna, because they're bigger fish and have been eating all the smaller fish, they accumulate mercury. It's just an unfortunate side effect of kind of modern day pollution. So you want to limit this because we will also accumulate that mercury. Mercury poisoning is it's a real thing. It's not a good thing. Um, accumulating these heavy metals has a lot of consequences. So just stick to small fish, salmon, mackerel, sardines, anchovies. And I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, yeah, so small fish and, and you'll be you'll be just fine with that. Now we'll get to some alternatives if you don't like these, obviously, but small fish. Now there's lots of other seafood too. That is a really good source of omega-3. Um, you know, herring, um, what else is out there? I'm drawing a blank on these, but you guys know oysters, scallops. I mean, there's lots of options. So seafood overall, really good source. Now other good sources, what about, uh, you know, your chicken or your pork or your beef? What about these? Are these good sources? Well, this too, we talked a little bit about this last time, but these are interesting. This is a really good example of how not only is omega-3 important to support our omega-3, but so is omega-6. So something like, let's take beef for instance. Beef is not particularly a good source of omega-3. It just isn't. It, it doesn't have a lot of omega-3. But the amount of omega-6 in beef does dramatically vary. And that is critical. We know that grass-fed beef is closer to a one-to-one -one ratio, meaning that it's actually quite low in omega-6, even though it's low in omega-3. And so consuming something that has that close to one-to-one -one ratio is still gonna be beneficial for your omega-3 intake. If we compare that to conventional beef, we see the ratio of conventional beef a lot higher. It's it's usually around eight to one. However, there's a lot of inconsistencies. So sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's a little bit lower. So this tells us that 
the source is important. We can use a, a similar kind of rationale for other things um, such as pork, pork, not a good source of omega-3. But if we get a better source, it's going to have a better six to three ratio. Egg yolks, same thing here. Okay source of omega-3, not as high as people think actually, but if you get a good a good a good source of eggs so from free range chickens whenever possible it's going to have a better six to three ratio so that's going to be good too so those are some really important sources now what about our nuts and seeds talked a little bit about this one as well last time i think this is to me this is i call it kind of one of the most abused topics in nutrition nowadays on social media I see this all the time. People tout people tout nut bars and and seeds and all of these nut and seed products as just these ultimate health foods. Um, I don't agree with this at all. I think they can definitely fit into a healthy diet. I'm not saying completely remove them, but what we're seeing nowadays is basically encouragements to include more and more and more of these, but I'm going to tell you why that's a problem. So these are not a good source of omega-3 on average. Usually these are actually very high in omega-6, very low in omega-3. Now I don't want to totally demonize omega-6 because some omega-6 is good and we need that. But the point here is that excess intake of these is not going to be a good thing. And if your goal is to support what we're talking about here, which is omega-3, which is mental health and depression, consuming these several times per day, something like, and I think this is pretty common. Let's say you have, um, you know, you have a nut bar at breakfast. Maybe you have trail mix for a snack. Maybe you have peanut butter at lunch. And then maybe you have another type of nut bar after dinner. That's a ton. I, I just kind of encourage people to imagine our ancestors who would have had incredibly limited access to these because we, we had to shell these ourselves. And so we would never have access to this enormous bag or bar that we can just dig into. We would have had limited access to these. So again, not all bad, but you can kind of pick and choose here. So I like the one to two rule here. Try and limit the sources of plants and seeds that you consume in a day to one to two. There's also better options. So trail mixes are kind of a, a danger zone, I would say. Stick to your raw nuts and seeds. So whatever they are, it doesn't matter. But you want raw and you want unroasted. Because when you see roasted, those have been roasted in usually vegetable oil. So those exact same oils that we were just talking about. Now there is a couple, um, a couple that are better than others. So hemp seeds are, are kind of better than the others in terms of six to three ratio. Chia is a good option. And so is flax. But again, you, you want to be sure of the sources here. So you want whole flax seeds, store that in the fridge when you can. But the other important thing here is, is actually when it comes to strictly supporting omega-3 from plant sources, 
including these nuts and seeds, is this a good option? Can we actually do this? So this is interesting too. Um, another thing that I don't think is very well known nowadays, the omega-3 we get from plant sources is not the same as the omega-3 we would get from something like fish or seafood. So when we get omega-3 from those animal foods, it's in the form of EPA or in the form of DHA or those other omega-3s. Our body's really good at using that. In fact, it just it's 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 ready to be used. When we get omega-3 from these plant sources like chia or hemp or flax or some of these other plant sources, it's in the form of what's called ALA or alpha linoleic acid. So why this is important is because your body has to work to actually convert this into a usable form. So it has to take this through different metabolic pathways to convert this into usable EPA and DHA and those other omega-3s. Now, the reason this is so critical is because the conversion rate of ALA to EPA and DHA in humans is on average pretty terrible. So this has been looked at several times as well in many studies, but one study looked at the conversion of ALA to EPA and DHA in, in healthy young men as well as healthy young women. women. And they found that approximately 8% of alpha linoleic acid was converted to that usable EPA, whereas 0 to 4% was converted to DHA. So remember, DHA is the type of omega-3 that's probably most important for our brain. It's the source that you're going to find in breast milk, but that too is declining nowadays, which we talked a little bit about last time. So that's 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 not a good thing, right? Now, it seems to be a little bit better in women for whatever reason. Um, the research suggests that it's because of some impacts of estrogen, but it's still very low. So in young women, approximately 21% of ALA was converted to EPA, while only 9% was converted to DHA. So remember, we're comparing that to 100% if we consume that from those other sources like fish and so on. And so I'm not here to, you know, bash other diets or anything like that, but this is just one of the reasons why I will argue till, pardon the pun, till the cows come home that a vegan diet just is not optimal. Can it be healthy? Sure, if done properly, definitely. And it's and it's probably healthier than eating a bunch of, well, it is, it, it's healthier than eating a bunch of processed crap, but it's not optimal. And it drives me crazy when people argue that like game changers, it's just, it's, 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 it's just not accurate guys. It's, and there's so much science to show this. So that's a key takeaway there is that while these can be good sources, you don't want to rely on them. So now what about fish oil? So we actually didn't talk much about fish oil last time. Shocker. Um, because I, I don't know, I, I guess I, did, I didn't want to make it salesy, but I want to give you guys some really important information on fish oil now. So we talked about different sources from diet and, and how that would affect your levels. But if you're not consuming, there's a couple examples here. If you're not consuming, um, say, much of this seafood, or maybe you don't consume a lot of 
grass-fed sources or maybe you consume a lot of processed foods or whatever there's a lot of people especially nowadays a lot of people who could benefit from a good fish oil now the reason i bring this up is because i think we're gonna we're gonna end with this but because not all fish oil is created equal and maybe you've heard me talk about this before but i really want to emphasize this so let's just focus on a couple things we'll talk about purity of fish oil and we'll also talk about potency so the potency is easy let's focus on that now you'll see fish oils that have doses just incredibly low so classic example you'll go to your grocery store or pharmacy or whatever and you'll see fish oil it might have a dose of you know it might have something like 300 milligrams of epa and 200 milligrams of dha so that's that's really low guys and and i've seen lower than this that's 500 milligrams of omega-3 per serving so that's that's quite low and so this is an important thing to look for. So you want upwards of about three grams total of omega-3 per day. That's kind of the average dose. Some people need less, some people need more, and it really depends on diet, but, but that's a good number to aim for. So 3000 milligrams or three grams total. But I wouldn't say this is the biggest problem because if it's low potency, well then you can just take more. But the biggest problem is the purity. So unfortunately, most fish oils on the market are oxidized and rancid. And you can kind of pick up on this yourself with simple like smell or taste tests. If you bite into a, a, a fish oil capsule, it actually should not have a nasty fishy taste. It also shouldn't have that awful smell when you open the bottle and you shouldn't get those terrible after burps. Another really easy test, you could pop that into your freezer. If it freezes, well, that's, that's another red flag because the, the omega-3 does not uh, freeze. So if it freezes, that tells you, well, hey, there's a bunch of other crap in here. So there was actually a, there's one particular study I'm thinking of it collected 49 different fish oils, common fish oils that you would just find um, over the counter at your grocery store or wherever. And it tested the levels of oxidation in these. So 49 different fish oils. Now, oxidation is basically the, basically the destruction essentially of the omega-3 fat that's in this oil, which is why you're buying that in the first place. So, because of the chemical structure of these omega-3s, they're very vulnerable. Hey, Benson, how you doing? Benson's just home from his first day of daycare. <laughs> so because of the chemical structure of these, they're very vulnerable to heat as well as air. And so if a manufacturer is just, you know, if they don't know this or if they don't care and do it cheaply, that healthy omega-3 is going to oxidize, which basically destroys it in a sense. And then you're not going to be getting the full benefit. And this is actually really common. We see this in a ton of different fish oils. That's what this study found. They found that 50% of these that they looked at of the 49 common brands had excess levels 
of oxidation. They also found excess levels of heavy metals in many of them. And so when we compare that with the fact that a lot of these are low potency, to put it bluntly, there's a lot of just useless fish oil out there. And so I hope this helps you guys. It's a couple things to look for, a couple tests you can use for your fish oil. If you're gonna buy it, please spend a couple extra dollars, get a good one. Look for the dosing. So look for something like three grams per serving. Look for quality certification. The best one would be IFOS, I-F-O-S. You can see this clearly on the label if a product has this. It means that it's been certified by the international fish oil standards to not contain excess oxidation or heavy metals or contamination, which shows you it is pure. Now, the last thing I should mention before I run out of time here, you actually want to also look at the bottle size. Enormous bottle sizes of fish oil, also not a good thing. It seems awesome at the time because you're getting a deal, but it comes back to the oxidation issue. So fish oil will naturally oxidize, even if it's good quality, even if you store it in the freezer. And so when you buy an enormous bottle, you have it stored for longer, which means it has longer to oxidize. And so when you get to those later doses, it's going to be low quality, even if it was good when you first bought it. And so you want to look for products which don't last longer than maybe a month or like two months at the most. And then lastly, the type. I know there's a lot to keep track of here, but hopefully you guys are kind of jotting this down. The type. So you want to look for triglyceride form. You don't want ethyl ester. Triglyceride form is what our body is best at breaking down and digesting. So when you get omega-3 from something like fish, it is in triglyceride form, which means our body's very well at digesting it. If you buy something like an ethyl ester, our body has to take it through some different metabolic steps in order to get it into a usable triglyceride form. And it's not as well absorbed. Finally, finally, the last thing I'll point out is that this is this kind of highlights um, the reason or a couple reasons why some of the data with fish oil, some of the research is not always conclusive. And we could apply this to anything, whether it's whether it's research that looks at fish oil and depression, or if it's anything else, um, heart attack or arthritis or, you know, whatever. It's because unfortunately, and I have no idea why, but unfortunately a lot of these studies use crappy fish oil, which just blows my mind. I can't believe they do this and I can't believe they don't take the time to actually do their research and find the best type. But, um, hey, that's 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 what's out there. And unfortunately, the media, I think, oftentimes grabs this, um, you know, this study that uses a crappy type and says, look, you know, supplements are useless. Um, but it just takes a bit of extra digging. So um, that's it for today, guys. I'm spent. Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much. We'll chat soon.